All right, you want to come on, have a seat. We'll get started. Yes. All right. So, all right. Hey, by way of announcement, let me go ahead and say the people running sound back there, when Andrew comes up in just a little bit, he'll do testimony today after the second song, and he'll just, he'll just stand right here. So, you know, after you take the reverb off, you know, after I sing, you take reverb off so he can come here so he's not talking with a bunch of reverb. So, um, anyway, well, hope everybody's doing well this morning. We have a lot of people that are sick or out of town. Seems to be the case every week during this unique time that we're in. But uh, but I have a few announcements for you. So um, if you'll kind of dial in and pay attention for a few minutes here, um, and I'll give you I'll give you this info. So to start off, uh, where is Natalie Dixon? There she is, right there. So I'm going to ask Natalie to help me out in just a second. We'll start off with this announcement, and uh, that is that we have. Uh, the missions team got together, I think, last Sunday or the Sunday before that, I believe it was. And, of course, you know, the missions team responsibility is to help to create a context for mission here, uh, you know, where, where, where it's kind of encoded in the DNA of the church, becomes normative as a part of our, our, our life and a part of our language. And so one of the things they're working on is an opportunity to partner with Miracle Hill. Now, Miracle Hill, uh, I'm sure everybody's heard of them, you're familiar with them, but they are one of the organizations in that school of thought and ministry that are actually really holding the line well in terms of doctrine. There's a lot of those type of organizations that um, have kind of become somewhat liberal, but Miracle Hill's doing a really good job doctrinally of holding the line, and they're catching a lot of heat for some things. So anyway, just remember that, keep them in your prayer. Keep them in your prayers. But what they're doing, they have several ministries. One ministry um, is called Shepherd's Gate. Now, this is a ministry specifically for women. These are women who are uh, struggling, hurting, downtrodden, homeless, whatever, you know, uh, drug addicted, uh, alcohol addicted, whatever addiction they're facing. And so they bring these women in off of the street, and they're part of Shepherd's, Shepherd's Gate, and then those ladies get into the renewal program. Now, what I'm going to ask Natalie to do is one of the leaders of this organization for Shepherd's Gate. Her name is Ann Hill. Uh, she's not the director, uh, but she is one of the, the leaders that's, that's uh, kind of running some things out there. But uh, I spoke with Ann, and Natalie has spoke at link with Ann. Natalie has uh, emailed back and forth with Ann about getting information. So here's basically what we're proposing. We are proposing, and I'll let Natalie talk about what that entails. We are proposing that the way that we would support Miracle Heal is uh, through adopting one of their rooms in a facility that they're about to open up. Now, doing so allows us an opportunity. It gives us an open-door policy with the people at uh, with those ladies who are struggling at Miracle Hill, it opens up opportunities for discipleship, for Bible study, for evangelism, uh, a lot of opportunities, especially for you ladies. Now, we're obviously not going to send a bunch of men to, a, to a, a women's facility and say, you know, go witness to them and all that or do Bible studies. But there are opportunities for 
husbands and wife or co-ed, you know, a co-ed thing to go and do Bible studies. But primarily what we're interested in is our women having opportunity to engage these, uh, to engage these women. Because I know over the years, many of you have talked about these things. Um, I know Shanna Finley's one, and she has a heart for those things. She's in Conway, Arkansas with family this week. But uh, she's definitely one that we think of that has voiced in the past and both has shown giftings, you know, and, uh, and something like that. So, Anyway, but Natalie, if you'll come up and just talk a little bit about your conversation with Ann, some potential things going on there, what we can expect, what it would look like to support them, and what they're asking. You come on up and do that, and then I'll finish announcements as soon as she's finished. So as Alan mentioned, Miracle Hill is um, an evangelical, um, gospel-centered um, organization that puts Jesus at the center of all that they do. And um, Lysandra and Shanna and I had the opportunity to go to a training a couple years ago, um, a year and a half ago, um, for Renewal, which is one of the programs that they have for um, for the adult ministry um, to women. And it is a six-month um program um, for addiction recovery um, for women um, that are struggling with um, with addictions to all types of drugs and alcohol. Um, but the women there um, go through a four-level program, um, which is a 12-step program that is Bible-based. Bible they receive discipleship, um, life skills training, um, and um, counseling through the renewal program. Currently, there's 25 beds in the renewal program, um, but there has been a couple month waiting list for the ladies to get in there. Um, and that's where this new facility is going to afford them 20 more beds. Um, it's the old boys' home off of Wade Hampton that they've um, turned into a home for these ladies. Um, so it'll be a safe place for a lot of ladies who will be coming straight off straight from homelessness, straight off the streets, but it, they'll have a safe place to stay and receive prayer and discipleship until a, a place would open up at the renewal program. Um, so they plan to open the doors April the 19th for this facility. So they're working on um, getting it ready. And um, that's a part of where they're asking churches to partner is in sponsoring a bedroom. Um, and initially that will be um, outfitting the room with things like sheets, bedding. Um, they have a real specific list, um, towels, washcloths, um, toiletries, and um, like a Bible and journal and pens and pencils for a desk. Um, but they also, the way where we would be partnering is in prayer. And like Alan said, and, and what we hope is opportunities for discipleship and Bible studies and um, just encourage these ladies during this time when they're um, awaiting uh, a place, um, a spot in the renewal program. Um, I do have a list of prayer needs to, um, that are kind of general for, um, for us to start praying over. I'm going to try to post those on the app. Um, but as they know the ladies' names, we'll actually have the ladies' names and more specific needs that we can be praying for them. Um, but I'm, I'm excited after going through the the training for mentoring with renewal i was really um just impressed with how um just the gospel just flows through everything that they do and i just thought that that was a great 
that reflected the heartbeat of our church as well. So I'm excited for an opportunity to um, partner with an organization that is keeping the gospel central and um, and just reaching out to a, a group of people that can often get um, get overlooked. Um, so if you if you will pray about the opportunity to join in that, there is um, some forms and some some training. I went through it last night in probably 20 minutes, um, but very minimal that if you're going to be volunteering, actually going into the facility that you would need. It's like a liability waiver and to read through the the handbook. Um, but if you'll be praying in prayer about that opportunity, I'm really excited that I think there's going to be a, a huge need for um, for them as they're starting this new new program. So new facility. So after after talking with Austin, the plan, uh, what we want to kind of propose to you all is, you know, Natalie talked about what it takes to outfit these rooms. Um, uh, there are some churches that have done this New Covenant Christian Fellowship, have adopted a few rooms. I think between the two rooms, they spent somewhere between five and $600. You know, that's uh, for two rooms, furnishing those two rooms. Uh, so what we're proposing is that uh, is that we we move forward with this and as a matter of fact Ann told me on the phone the other day that she they have seven I think seven rooms or seven openings and this there's only one more and she's reserving that for us and waiting on us to follow up so this is the only opportunity we'll have it seems right now anyway to adopt this room but again it opens up a door as I talked with Ann at length uh, Friday you know, she had, she just said kind of the, the sky's the limits uh, right now in weird COVID pandemic times. They're kind of not super open, which we understand. And, um, and they're, they have to kind of get a, it's going to be a different ministry, a slightly different program, even though it's a part of Shepherd's Gate. And then those ladies move to renewal. They're going to have to kind of contextualize and kind of adjust or adapt to, to these new uh, group of ladies that come through. And so they're just asking for uh, patience on, on, on the side of those who uh, are adopting these rooms uh, because they want them to have these relationships, but they have to build those relationships first, uh, and especially since this is kind of an inaugural embryonic time um, that they want to uh, just be very intentional with that time. So, But she said the sky is the limits. All the things that we mentioned, Bible studies, discipleship, one-on-one, life-on-life, you know, meals, baby showers, all that stuff is absolutely a possibility to, uh, to have inroads into the lives of these women. Uh, but she said, uh, and I told her, I said kind of our interest is not kind of a fly-by ministerial sprinkling kind of a situation, but you know, we love the idea of partnering with Miracle Hill. Now, this doesn't mean we're throwing money at them every month. This just means that, hey, we'll furnish this room. What we mean by a long-term relationship is we have an ongoing opportunity, ongoing relationships through the new crop, new batch of women that come through. They're hopefully women that come there. They get clean. They get well. They go to renewal. They get jobs. They get set up for success. The more the new women come in there, there's more opportunities and new people to disciple, new people to hopefully see come to Christ. So we want that kind of long-term ministerial relationship with them, which she loved that. She said the director of Miracle Hill or maybe the director of Shepherd's Gate, her name is Venus, whatever her last name is, but 
that that's her heart as well. So I'm going to talk to her uh, either Monday or Tuesday. She's going to call me, Austin. I'll let you know how that goes. Uh, just she wants to share some of her vision as well in that long-term ministerial relationship. So anyway, so what we're going to do is we're proposing to you that we that 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 you're okay with us furnishing that room. We don't know what it would cost. You know, a couple of hundred dollars probably to furnish that room. Uh, Jamie and Stephen, as a part of the, the the missions meeting, they have kind of pitched this idea that they wanted to do a fundraiser in order to uh, pay for that opportunity. So, talking with Austin, let me just kind of quickly share with you our philosophy of fundraising in the church. Uh, the only no go for us is a church that rather than gives or sacrifices or does whatever to provide through the church for things, um, the only no-go is if you're unwilling to do that, but you're willing to panhandle or willing to ask for money without doing anything to, to, to get that. Okay. So if you want to you 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 cut yards. You wash cars. You 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 smoke uh, you smoke uh, Boston butts or whatever it is. Uh, you know uh, pork. You do that and you sell these plates, which is what these guys are planning to do to, to to raise money. That's you earning something. You're giving a product. You know it's not just going and asking for a handout. There is a problem when the world is taking care of the the means of the church instead of the church itself you know sacrificing and doing what's necessary to do those things so that's our that's our only issue with fundraisers we don't want anybody going out just asking for money without providing something you know without doing something for them without selling a product in that sense you want to do that give money whatever you want to give money to that's fine but we're not going to go asking people for money when we're not willing to provide that ourselves or at least sacrifice to do so okay so uh, so that's that. Anyway, if there's an issue with that, I don't assume there would be, but if someone has an issue or questions, I'll be around for a little bit after service. Austin will be around for a little bit after service. Come and talk to us because we want to get this ball rolling. I'd like to be able to give Anne a definitive uh, answer by tomorrow. So if no one talks to me about this or has hesitation or question about this, I'm going to assume that everyone's good and I'm going to give her the green light. So, um, Anywho, so to go ahead and furnish this room. Uh, the only other announcements, I know we're taking some time with announcements, but we have... We furnish. That's a good question for clarification. We're not, we, we are not just giving money and they furnish. Uh, we're furnishing a room. They gave a li- have a list of things that they would like to see in the room. Whatever that cost us is whatever that cost us, okay? You know, you can go to Kirkland's and buy a $400 lamp, or you can go to Target and buy a $20 lamp. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's and it's not trying to get off cheap. It's where we're trying to outfit them with things that are nice, but, uh, but honor the request that every room is going to have. Every room is very similar. It's not like one room is, you know, super, super nice. You bring in an interior designer, you know, and really just knock it out of the park, and the next one's like my college dorm room, okay? We're not talking about that. You know, we want everyone to be a nice accommodation and a, and a consistent and a pattern for all of these ladies who are there trying to get well, okay? And, and, and again, let me say, Miracle Hill, although it's a ministry and all, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to get these women clean and get them help. Their primary goal is to see these women come to Christ. So there's a gospel root behind all of these things, which is why we are happy to, to, uh, to lock arms with, with them in this endeavor. So um, the last Sunday in this month, we're going to have a uh, a financial meeting. It'll be at the end of service. We're going to try to do that quarterly instead of once a year. So 
if you can be here for that. We're going to give you some stuff to, to, so that you can see where we are. You'll see kind of a, an itemized uh, monthly list of costs that we have, and I think that'll be helpful for everybody just to have that visual. So that's coming, so expect that. Also look around you, as we say every week, be mindful of those that aren't here and uh, for whatever reason, uh, and just make sure that they know that they are missed, make sure that they know that they are loved, that they are valued, uh, reach out to them, contact them, and, uh, and, and that, goes a, that goes a long way, all right? So um, anyway, I'm going to ask Antoine to come on up, and yes, thank you, MC Leaders Meeting, thank you. Uh, I have that written right here. I'm just not looking at what I have written. Um, so you know how it is when I go away from notes. Either things get added that shouldn't or things get left out that should have been there. So um, what we're going to do is if we can meet at my house because Sarah has to work today, that would be great. 630, is that what we had decided? Yeah. If that's an issue for anybody, just let us know. We can we can alter that schedule. That's fine. Uh, so 630, unless we hear otherwise, for a, a better time for people. At my house tonight, MC Leaders. Okay. Come on up, brother. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone in here. To come in here and worship the Lord. Good to see you, Austin, you and your family. Um, I know um, just thinking about the opportunities, the new opportunities that we have concerning missions, uh, I think a lot of times we think that we're real more focused on abortion, and that's like the only option or mission field that we have when, when we don't. Um, so we want to do a better job of being clear of all the other uh, um, mission opportunities that we have as a body. And I think me and my wife went to North Carolina um, over the weekend, and we went to a couple of the abortion clinics there, and um, Love Life, which is an organization um, that, are, that um, has a lot of resources to help a lot of these women that go out and they preach the gospel, and they're very biblical-based. You know, it's, it's just a reminder. When we went there, we seen, like, hundreds of people that were out there, and a lot of them weren't even... Um, engaging with the people that were the escorts or anything. They were just walking around at the church, praying. And it's just a reminder of, of God's mission here on earth. As, as a church, we're a pillar, a light in the midst of darkness. And I think a lot of times when we, we think that only the ones who are gifted are the ones that should be out there. But I think it's just a reminder because not everybody's the head, not everyone's the foot, the eyes, but we're all to function as one, as a whole, and there's, there's, you know, even, even if you feel led and, and, and God is, is, is wanting you to go out and to do something, even showing up at the abortion clinic is, is enough, even, even, um, even talking about abortion or, or any, any other opportunities that you have as a believer, you know, even when I went, even when I go downtown Greenville, you know, being engaged with a Black Lives Matter protest was, was very <laughs> eye-opening, but, but these are, you know, we, we bring up these things, not to just confront people, but we bring up these things because every issue is a gospel issue, um, and we don't we don't bring these things up to feel like we're better than, than anyone else or we're more gifted. But this is what the gospel um, just means to us in our heart as believers. And um, I just want to read a verse real quick um, in First Corinthians chapter four, um, six through seven. It says, for God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. 
And this is a reminder that we are just vessels of clay. We are weak. That way we can show the true glory and power of what God's grace has done to us. And when I go out, when we all go out as believers, we remind people we're not better than you. If anything, we're better off. But that's why the gospel makes sense to us because it's all by grace. And these, these ministries that we have are only mercy ministries. We don't deserve it. And that's what the gospel is. We need to remind ourselves we don't deserve the gospel. But God has allowed us to experience this grace through shining the light of Jesus Christ in our hearts. And that's what we need to remember every single day. And let's pray for um, just our missionaries. Um, I think we get a small glimpse of missions when we look at the hostility at the abortion clinics and a lot of when people get real hostile downtown Greenville. But we don't see and experience what people are going through like uh, in Ireland and in China and in Bangladesh. Um, but I, th I think it's a reminder to, to see. And even um, let's pray for uh, Pastor James Coates. I think that's, that's his name. Because I think it's a reminder of what can happen here. Something that's going on in Canada where a pastor was jailed for preaching the gospel. And it's, and it's also a reminder if, if, if he was jailed, but not the other people that are in Canada that are still preaching. You know, it's a reminder, like trying to make a, a statement of us and believers. And that's what it means. We need to be bold and courageous. And let's, let's pray. Um, thank you, Lord, for shining the light of the gospel in our hearts. Um, allowing us to see Jesus Christ to fix our eyes as we remember in Hebrews 12 that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses a great cloud of witnesses Lord that we might have hope and not lose this hope even if we feel like we're alone and we're sharing the gospel and, and no one can relate to us we know that you are sovereign we know that you are in control even if we suffer for righteousness sake we suffer for you to bring glory to your name, to allow people to see that if we come to you, we die to ourselves, we die to our sin, but we live for you, Jesus Christ. We live to bring glory to you, and we are here to uplift the name of Jesus Christ, for you are creator. All things were made by you, through you, and for you. And we experience this grace here and now, not just when we die and we go to heaven, but we experience this grace and we pray that you will stir our hearts to glorify you, Lord. And whatever we do, whether we eat, sleep, and drink, it's all for your glory. We pray that, that the missions that we, uh, missionaries that we support, that we will remember their suffering, that we remember their hard work and their labor, and we pray that you will bring fruit through all these people who are who are sharing the gospel, even here and now through this church, we pray um, that we all bring glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand again. sin, 
Lost without hope with no place to begin Your love made a way to let mercy come in When death was arrested and my life began Ash was redeemed, only beauty remains And my orphan heart was given a name My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance When death was arrested and my life began Oh, your grace suffering washes over me You have made me new, now life begins with you Release from my chains, I am a prisoner no shame was a ransom me faithfully born he canceled my debt and he called me his friend when death was arrested and my life began oh your grace suffering washes over rejoiced as though heaven had lost but then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand when death was arrested and my life began oh your grace washes over
Christ the sure and steady anchor Though the fury of the storm When the winds of doubt blow through me And my sails have all been torn In the suffering, in the sorrow When my sinking hopes are few I will the sure and steady anchor while the tempest rages on when temptation claims the battle and it seems the night is won deeper still then goes the anchor though I justly stand accused I will hold fast to the shall never be removed. Christ the sure and steady anchor through the floods of unbelief. Hopeless somehow, oh my soul now, lift your eyes to Galilee. This my See His love forever brew. All my hope is in the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ the sure and steady anchor as we face the trials give way to glory as we draw this final breath. We will cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Christ the shore of our salvation. Ever faithful, ever true We will hold fast to the anchor It shall never be So I've asked Andrew Johnson to come up and share a uh, testimony with us. We told you at the turn of 2021 that we were really trying to emphasize or focus more on being gospel, intentional gospel saturated. And one way that we're trying to do that is by having people come up periodically and sharing testimony of how the gospel has affected their life and how the gospel shapes their life and continues to affect the way we always live and move and have our being. Andrew, brother, you come on up and share. Thanks for 
having me share. I really appreciate it. Um, for those of you who don't know me, um, I'm Andrew Johnson, wife Talitha, three kids, Benaya, well, Naomi, Benaya, and uh, Ethan, Ethan Cole. So I'm just going to start out by sharing uh, Psalm 130, uh, a psalm that's really uh, ministered to, to my, my heart and uh, my life over the years. Um, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my, my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And one thing, <clears throat> excuse me, Antoine, you said earlier is we don't deserve the gospel. None of us deserves the gospel. And, uh, and how true that is. Um, so um, I just want to share my uh, testimony. I, I've never done this before. So growing up in a Presbyterian church, it's, it's uh, something you don't do necessarily or we didn't do growing up. So um, when Alan called me and asked me to share, I, at first I was like, uh, I don't know about that because I don't like getting in front of people. But I definitely want to take the opportunity to testify to God's grace. And, uh, and, and if you don't hear anything I say or remember anything I say, just remember God is gracious. So, and he's definitely been gracious to me. Um, so, again, my name is Andrew, Andrew Johnson. Like some of you, I, um, I've never enjoyed having to participate in public speaking role in a uh, in classroom um, in, in high school. When I was in the classroom in high school, they always would, you know, ask you to raise your hand. Who would volunteer? I would never volunteer. Um, so... Um, I had to I had to write out some of this, so let's see. So I had, I still have vivid, unpleasant memories of uh, the physiological response that my body underwent underwent just uh, during senior history class <laughs> when I had to give the oral report. I remember, um, yeah, I I just remember having just a shaking. I'm like I wouldn't even be called on. I would just be shaking. I'm just like I, I can't do that. Um, so, but as I've, as I've reflected upon that time in my life, I realize, as, at least as it applies to me, I was seeking glory for myself. Because I wrongly thought that if someone didn't like me, then my world would fall apart. Um, and so I was seeking, like I said, I was seeking glory for myself. So over the years, though, God has mercifully showed me that that attitude sprang up from an idolatrous heart. I was a self, I was self-worshipper who wanted glory for myself um, to just got, I mean, just if you want to boil it down, that's what it was. Um, so I share that little story with you um, as an example of the mercy and grace of our great God. Uh, you see, without the grace of God, my testimony would be about me and how good I am. But my story's not about me or my goodness, as though I had any of my, in had any in myself in fact if i were to give my life story a title 
a proper one would be taken from Ephesians 2, 4, which many of you are uh, familiar with. Um, it starts off, but God. Uh, and so, you know, God rescued me. God rescued you if you uh, name the name of Christ. Um, I was born at home, at home to parents uh, Stan and Yvonne Johnson in Piedmont, South Carolina on December 15th, 1975. Um, I think I was five or six years old um, when my dad felt the call to go to full-time ministry. Um, so he was, we were in a Presbyterian church and I remember walking down the, uh, down the aisle, all, the whole family and the pastor just blessed us and it seemed like the next day we were packing up to go to uh, St. Louis, Missouri where my dad was, um, went to seminary and uh, so fast forward 15 years, uh, I just finished high school, we were in Kentucky, a little town called Cynthiana, just north of Lexington and um, but I had grown up relatively unchanged by the gospel. I mean, I'd heard it. My dad had, uh, I remember my dad saying, tell me the gospel, um, a lot of hymns, <laughs> uh, but never really cha- had the heart change. So I, I was attending, I was around 20 years old. I was attending Eastern uh, Kentucky University. Uh, and I started attending a little gathering called uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And, uh, so yeah, there was a man there, his name was Alan Bonnell and he started, I just noticed he had a passion for the word of God and passion for, um, loving people, loving Christ. He, he loved Jesus. Um, so yeah, he loved Jesus. He loved people. And I, I often reflect upon the work God did in, in me during the, those couple of years to open my eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. Um, so yeah, God's grace shines in the darkest of times. Uh, in, in 19, from 1999 to 2001, uh, there was a dark period in my life where uh, several things happened. My parents divorced, uh, and I just entered into a time of sinful rebellion and uh, selfish pursuits. Um, that's really what it boiled down to. God uh, let me go my own way, and uh, in 2002, God mercifully sent me to, uh, or I had been attending North Greenville College and uh, got involved with some guys there that really loved Jesus, um, Chris Greer and uh, others there that uh, we just had almost like daily Bible studies there, <laughs> seemingly, uh, introduced John Piper and um, just his teachings and uh, the sovereignty of God and sovereignty, uh, uh, the grace of God. In 2004, um, by God's wonderful providence, I met my beautiful wife at Providence Baptist Church, and um, we were married in 2006. And um, and since that time, I'll, I'll just briefly share, in 2013 and 2015, both those years, uh, we had some pretty, you know, severe trials where she was hospitalized, and uh, but God is, has, was very merciful in, in giving us grace and bringing us other believers who really ministered to our family and prayed with us and uh, so you know God's people are everywhere they're not just here they're not just across town they're and uh, where we were in Colorado they're in Bangladesh and um, Ireland and China everywhere so God's God's providence is a real thing and he sends people right when you need them and uh, so um, 
yeah, God's faithfulness, God is faithful through it all. And I just want to share, uh, I know my time's, I don't want to go over, I'm not sure how long it is. <laughs> I want to share a, 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 a hymn that I'd been um, reading and I heard the other day is by John Newton, who most of you know probably was a slave trader and uh, God saved him. He, he had, he, uh, he was saved by God's grace and he wrote, of course, wrote Amazing Grace. But he wrote a, call, a song called I Asked the Lord, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that and try to get through it um, and see if you can identify with uh, God's grace and God's sovereignty and God's love and providence. And I asked the Lord that I might grow in, in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Um, yeah, instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, uh, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. He crossed all the fair designs I schemed and blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. And I um, shared, just want to share this last thing. John Newton, he voiced his confusion and the confusion of many Christians at points and their, their faith journey, when the struggle for sin is real and sanctification seems to uh, take place so, so, so slowly. The trials and difficulties are always, are, are ways in which we, we learn how to truly die to self. And when we find out that um, we have nothing but Christ, we learn too that in Christ is all that, uh, that in Christ is all we, that we need. So God disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness, and that's in Hebrews 12.10. Uh, his poem, this poem was actually called a prayer answered by crosses. Um, but it, God's answer to our prayers may not be what we think it should be, but most certainly hear, he most certainly hears and is still at work. So I'll just ask you, what are you struggling with today? Um, and, may this, and may this encourage you to take your honest questions and struggles to God in prayer uh, as you also trust that he is at work to break thy schemes of earthly joy. Thanks, Andrew. That was edifying and encouraging, brother. Appreciate that. Let's stand again.
All right, well, if you have a Bible, I hope you do, turn with me to John chapter 21. And our text this morning will be John. 21 fifth uh, verses 15 through 22 John 21 15 through 30 excuse me 15 through 22 so when they had finished breakfast Jesus said to Simon Peter Simon son of John do you love me more than these and he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my lambs. And he said to him a second, again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tim, my sheep. Truly, I, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But you, when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Let's pray. My God, as we open your word and we read this this precious gift to us of the reinstatement of Peter, one who had adamantly confessed his love for Christ and his devotion to him and then who quickly denied him the grace of Christ to reinstate him. And Father, as we look at this story, would you give us eyes to see our own frailty, our own weakness, our own unbelief, our own constant need for your daily provision of grace, our constant need of your washing, washing the dirt of unbelief away. And Father, may it stir our hearts to look and see what kind of love do we have for our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, there are, there are certain times, I think, in everyone's life, in every Christian's life, where they really 
have to take a hard look at who they are and their relationship with God. Sometimes that comes by way of things that happen to us directly, hardships we go through, battles that we that we personally face. And sometimes there are things in our culture, things that happen outside of us that bring that battle to the forefront and really make us step back and, and think, what kind of faith do I really have? Um, and I know, I know for me... Um, the Columbine shooting was one of those events that occurred for me when I was younger. Um, many of you may remember that in 1999 when two young, uh, two young men walked into their school um, and massacred many. Um, and there was a story that circulated uh, out, out, of that, uh, out of that event um, that really pricked the Christian community um, about a young lady who was shot and killed and the story goes that the the shooter asked her do you believe in God and she said yes and he said why and then shot and killed her Um, and the the story came out later more details uh, years later and um, I'll let you read kind of into that on your own it's an interesting story Um, as the story goes um, the young lady was mistaken by one of the uh, one of the, the young men in her class for another student. Um, and the, the, the facts and details kind of of the story were a little bit mixed. But the long and short of it was the young girl who, that the young girl who was asked, you know, why do you, you know, why do you believe in God was indeed shot. Um, and so the, 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 the point of all that is, um, I think it's right, regardless of, you know, what, what came out of that, I, I think it's right that any Christian who hears that story and hears the story of anyone who, who, is, who suffers directly because of their faith, uh, whether they're martyred in a third world country or whether they're persecuted, um, you know, here in our own, that we step back and we ask ourselves the, the, the piercing question, do I have that kind of faith? I mean, that was the question that went through my mind as a young man hearing that story would if I were to be in those shoes, would I have that kind of faith? Do I have the kind of faith, do I have the kind of love for God that's stronger than the love that's identified particularly by our current age? Our current age where, and I love the, I love the phrase that, uh, that Andrew used earlier uh, of a self-worshipper. You know, of a, a current age that denies the existence of God or at least a a, a definitive known entity who created the world and with whom we owe our allegiance to and our worship, um, but rather a God who's created more in our own image that suits our own liking. And so when our current age and our current culture, self-worship is highlighted, love is more defined by how I feel in the moment, and that's okay, and that's my highest form of joy and affection, and so the idea of being devoted to and loving God outside of myself and that that might cause me to suffer is a far foreign concept. It's decried by our, by our culture. And yet that's exactly where we find Peter this morning. We find him with him confronted with this reality of his own frailty, the own frailty of his faith thinking he had this high, grand faith and devotion to Jesus and then being confronted with his failure as Jesus is being tried and crucified. 
And now he's on the shores of Lake Tiberias and Jesus is there and he's confronted with this reality. What kind of faith does he have? I do think it's, I do think it's interesting and, and Alan preached on this last week and as any, I think, pastor will tell you, there's always more that can be said and I don't want to go back and kind of rework what, what Alan said, but I think it's interesting that Peter dove into the water and was the first to reach Jesus. And Peter was the very one who's highlighted as being the one who denied him. I don't know about you, but if it were me, I think my own flesh would be, I'm going to go hide in the, you know, in the bottom of the boat with the chum. You know, I don't want to be seen. I'm, I'm rather embarrassed here, you know. And yet Peter's the first one to dive in the water. I think it's a reminder to us, you know, that the soul that is wavering in its devotion to God that God in his sovereignty and in his grace will draw that soul to him. That we need not fret in, uh, unnecessarily over people where we see them up and down and up and down and up and down. You know, that doesn't mean that we give them the gospel, that, do, you know, that we don't give them the gospel. You know, a, as the parable says, you sow the seed, you know, you water the ground and then you go to sleep and you rise and there's the harvest. There is work for us to be done you know, but there is more of God's hand and his sovereignty in drawing souls to himself in his own time. And I think we oftentimes stress and fret and worry more about the power of our own persuasion or the power of other people's persuasion in the lives of people than we do having confidence in the hand of God to bring things about in his own time and waiting and being ready for our participation in that harvest. That's a little footnote. Um, but back to Peter, uh, I don't, I want to go there. The main question for today, what kind of love do you have for Christ? We're going to look at Peter's story, um, because Peter, Peter was a, Peter was a representative of all the disciples, um, and he's a representative of all believers, but he's also a representative of all pastors going forward. So there's a lot of there's a lot that we can draw out of this, and I want to just kind of go through, and we're going to hit on multiple points, and so there's going to be a lot pulled out. I'm hoping that some of it will resonate with, with each of you. Um, but the overarching big key question, I think, the fundamental point of this passage is what kind of love do you have for Christ? And we'll get to that here shortly. Um, but let's look, let's paint the background for this, okay? Because I think it's important that as we read this, and you, re, you know, you read any narrative in Scripture, having the background puts you in the shoes of whoever the key character is, whoever is standing there. As Peter is standing there with Jesus, it's important that we know what's the background, what's the circumstances surrounding it, because we can better identify with what's going on with Peter, with the disciples at that point. So give me just a minute. I want to take you through the circumstances surrounding it, and then also... Um, Peter's background words, the conversations that have occurred before this that put Peter where he is. So just think of the circumstances that are surrounding this event in relationship to Peter himself. Remember, where did Peter first, or where did Jesus first call the disciples? At least these disciples, uh, uh, um, many of these these others, it was in a boat, right? They were fishing, and he called them, and what did he say? I'll make you fishers of men. This is what Alan preached on last week, right? And now here, he's in a similar setting. They've been fishing, and he's calling them uh, to basically send them out again to be fishers of men. 
And Jesus is preparing a meal for them. Do you think about that? They're out fishing. They caught no fish. Jesus says, come on in. I mean, he tells them, fish on the other side of the boat. They fish on the other side of the boat. They get a, a mess of fish. I love that phrase. They catch a mess of fish. Um, they come in, and Jesus has a meal prepared for them. Right? Where did he get the fish? You know, Here's Jesus who acquired fish without tools. Here are these men who are professional fishermen who caught no fish on their own with all the tools that they had. Jesus has prepared a charcoal fire. Where was it that Peter was when he denied Christ? He was warming himself around a charcoal fire. Peter's denial occurred in the evening at night when the dark shroud of doubt is landing over Christ's trial. And where does Peter find himself now? In the early morning hours as the sun is rising where Christ has risen and has now appeared again to his disciples in hope, in light. So all of these things kind of come together as a circumstance right around this instance with Peter. You can't help but think that many of these things are weighing on him as well as the other disciples. Keep in mind he's a representative of the other disciples. All of these, cir these circumstances are kind of coming to a head as Peter is standing here and they're eating this meal. We're not told about the conversation that happens as they're eating. We're just told that once they finished breakfast, Jesus then turns to ask Peter this question. But before we get to the question, think about the conversations that's happened. Things that Peter has said previously. Um, one commentator made this, this parallel. I thought this was great. John chapter 21 in this section with Peter and his being reinstated, it's a bookend to John chapter 13. Remember John chapter 13? They're in the upper room. The note that Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and he gets to Peter, and Peter says, what are you doing? Don't No, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. And Jesus tells him, what I do now, you do not understand, but you will understand hereafter. Do you hear that? Peter has self-confidence in himself. No, 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 don't do that, Jesus. He's got a lot of self-confidence in himself at that point. And now here on the other side of his denial, surely he looks back on that and goes, I think I understand a little more about my need for his grace now that this has happened. I often wonder if Peter would be would have been if Jesus had instead of m moving from breakfast to questioning Peter if he'd broken out a basin and washed feet I often wonder would Peter have said me first you know <laughs> please <laughs> please wash my wash my feet you know no after that the same thing in John chapter 13 Jesus tells them what's going to happen he he again tells them I'm going to die I'm going away where I go you cannot follow and Peter then turns around and says why can't we why can't we follow you you know wherever you go I'm I'm going to go he even says Lord why why can I not follow you right now I will lay down my own life for you and Jesus answered him and said will you lay down your life for me Peter Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Mark clarifies this for us in his account. And he says, Peter even says, 
even if all these, I mean, you picture all the disciples are behind me, even if all these guys, even if they deny you, I'm not going to. Do you see Peter's self-confidence in his own faith? I've got this thing. I'm, I'm rock solid devoted to you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you're not as, as much as you think you are. In fact, you're going to deny me three times before the next day. And yet Peter was persistent in this. And the other disciples, they were following suit. They were persistent by saying, yeah, 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 we're, we're the same way. We're the same way. I think these, looking back on Peter's conversations and what's happened with him, it's a reminder that bold confidence oftentimes occurs when faith is not annealed by time and, uh, and sufferings. You know, that when you're on the mountaintop, when things are great, the view's perfect, you know, you're on top of the world, you've got a lot of confidence in your own faith, but it is only in your own faith. It's not a confidence that rests on God and his ability oftentimes to do and bring about the things that he's planned. And this is where Peter was. Remember Jesus, I didn't write this one down, but I remember reading it. Jesus told Peter that he said, Satan has asked to sift you. And I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you're restored, that you'll encourage your brothers. And where is, where is he now, right? He's, he's getting ready to be reinstated. He's getting ba- ready to be basically put as the key representative of the apostles who would lead the church in Jerusalem, who would then scatter and send the gospel out to the nations, Right? When you're reinstated, uh, encourage your brothers. I don't think that it's P- that Peter failed. Jesus prayed for him. His faith didn't fail, but he was allowed to stumble, and that humbled Peter deeply in a way that was necessary for God to bring about His purposes. So there you've got the the setting of that background, which paints a very humble picture of Peter, a very different picture of Peter than you get earlier on in the Gospels. You have a very humble and and broken Peter that's here on the lake shore. So that's, that's the background, that's the context. We're standing with Peter and we see where he is in his wrestlings. And so Jesus then asked him, Ask him questions, three questions. Peter has three denials. Three times he denied Christ. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Reaffirm Peter in his, in his purposes and what the Lord has for him. So I'm going I'm to walk through these. I'm not going to walk through every single one, but I do want to pull out key, key points of it, and I'll make application as we, as we go through. So Jesus says to him, says to him, Simon, son of John. He says, Simon, son of John. He doesn't say Peter, right? What does Peter mean? Do you remember? Peter means rock. Jesus told him, he said, when, when Peter made the, affirm, the, the, the affirmation of faith, Jesus asked him, who, who do people say that I am? He said, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say, some say, some say, some say. 
He says, well, who do you say that I am? And it is Peter who, in a moment of clarity that I think was given to him in that moment by the Holy Spirit, he says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That's his given name. Simon, son of John. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. So for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he says, he goes on to say, you will now be called Peter. For upon this rock, I will build my church. That profession of faith, upon that rock, I will build my church. So Peter would then be a representative of all who would come after him. In the, uh, in, uh, through salvation, professing faith in Christ. And yet it's interesting, if you watch how Jesus and Peter relate to one another, when Peter, when he's acting, when he's acting out of line, Jesus calls him Simon Barjona. He calls him by his old name, basically. And when he's walking in line with Christ, and he's following him, he calls him Peter. And so here, again, remember right after that, following the denial, he says, Simon, son of John. Can't help but think that, that he would say, call me Peter. Could you call? That's a, that's a, humble, a humble rebuke there. You know, when, well, I don't know, you have young kids. My children have a word that when, uh, when my children are in trouble, I use their full name. They call the, they say, that's my in trouble name. You know, it's like, what's your full name? What do you mean, what's your full name? What's your in trouble name? Oh, Addison Grace Jowers. Oh, see, that works. It's amazing. It's your in trouble name, you know. And I, I can't help but think that Simon Barjona, that Peter kind of began to associate that as his in trouble name. Simon Barjona. Yes, Lord. <laughs> No, it got his attention. He knew he was not doing what he was supposed to be doing. He said something out of line. When Jesus said Peter, that was a term of affection and endearment and affirmation. Something to be said about our names and our identity. You know, it's like a father saying, come here, son. We've got to talk. You know, well done, son. Good job. I'm very proud of you. Now, Jesus gives this kind of humble rebuke, or gives a gracious rebuke to him. He doesn't call him out. You know. he, doesn't, he doesn't dishonor the image of God that is in Peter. But he uses that relationship to cause Peter to come face to face with the reality of his failures. And in our current present day, that's one of the last things that oftentimes is encouraged in genuine relationships. We don't want to come face to face with our failures. That's offensive. But genuine true love oftentimes dictates that we have to come face to face to that. Otherwise, how else would we see grace? How else would we know mercy but to know our need for it? And Peter here, Jesus reminds him of his need for God's grace. We need to face the old self when he or she appears and confront our failures in order to know that the new self is actually real and to lean on the Lord 
Lord, give me grace. I see my failures. I see, I see that old self rising up here. Help me to do battle with it. That's where our faith then turns from ourself and self-confidence. I can do this. I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'll battle this temptation. I'll whatever. To Lord, send the old man away. No, I need, I need your grace to, 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 to guide me in doing battle here. So he calls him Simon, son of John. And then he asks him the question. He says, do you love me? More than these. Again, it's a gentle rebuke. Remember, what, is Peter, what did Peter boast in? Even if all of these turn against you, I'm not going to. And Jesus says, do you love me more than these now? Is your love for me so strong that it surpasses all of these? Peter replies humbly. He appeals to Jesus' omniscience. He doesn't say, yes, Lord, I do. I'm going to follow you anywhere. You're going to die a second time? I'm gonna, you know, I'll go with you. No, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The humble heart knows God's penetrating gaze and that it judges righteously but it is full of grace. It's almost as if Peter was saying, yes, Lord, but you know what's in my heart. You know better than I do. And then Jesus says to him, he says, tend my lambs. And he, he gives this rebuke, and instead of you know, bringing Peter low and then really just driving the hammer home, he gives him this gracious affirmation. You know, he doesn't say, well, Peter, you go sit in the back of the classroom. Peter, you go to timeout. You know, you have failed. Someone else will step in. He says, tend my lambs. My church that I'm building, I, you will still be a critical part of it. I think it's interesting here. He uses the word lambs. What are lambs? I mean, in a flock of sheep, the lambs are the weakest and the feeblest of the flock. Are they not? Jesus, in a tender way, is saying, care for the church. We'll talk about that in a minute. But here he's saying, care for the weakest and the mo those who are most in need in the church. I think it's a reminder that good pastors care for the spiritually feeble in their church. Those battling with deep sin, those wrestling with unbelief, those who are in, in circumstances that for one reason or another are prohibiting them in participation of the work of the church, the gospel work of the church. And just as good pastors do that, a healthy church cares for its own members, recognizes those who are weak, and lifts them up. Now, when you think of lambs, you think of cute, cuddly little sheep, right? No, I've seen pictures in stained glass windows. When I was a, a, a young child and grew up in the Methodist church, they had stained glass windows. There was a picture right behind the, uh, the choir loft 
this beautiful stained glass picture of Jesus holding this little tiny cuddly lamb, the little lamb looking up at Jesus, Jesus looking at the land, and just a, I mean, heartbreaking you know, picture. It was great. Um, it, my, my kids have a term for what happens to you when a cute animal takes you under its spell and captivates you. It's called cutify. You've been cutified. You know, my, let my kids explain this to you, you know, sometime. But it's a term that goes around our house all the time. You know, cute animal, regardless of what it is. And the nature of it is just, oh, oh. I mean, it, five minutes will go on, you know. It just captures you. And, I, it, you know, we have to remember when Jesus says lambs, the feeble and the weak, that's as far as the metaphor goes. I think so often we think of very simple, humble, tender, humanitarian efforts. But people are not lambs, right? Sin changes that. Sin makes spiritual infirmity ugly. It's hard work caring for the weak and feeble. It is because you're dealing with sin. You're dealing with personality quirks. And personality quirks and sin are very different. And sometimes it's very hard to navigate those. But it's important that we see those differences. Sometimes you're dealing with circumstances and things that are far beyond your comprehension and understanding. And you step back and say, Lord, how do I navigate this? How do I tend to this lamb how do I tend to this fellow believer in this area that I have a hard time identifying with? And yet you see the need. There's compassion that's there. And you're called to go and help tend. Tending to the lambs oftentimes requires giving up good things, oftentimes permissible things in our life in order to do the better work of honoring and lifting up fellow sheep. Tend my lambs. That's what Jesus tells Peter. That's what Jesus tells pastors. That's what Jesus tells the church. Care for your sheep. Care for one another. And then again, he asked him a second time. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he asked him this the third time. Now let's add another dimension to this question. I didn't bring this up at, at, at the first question, but I bring it up now. Let's add another aspect of this love. You can't see it in English, but in the Greek, Peter and John, or excuse me, Peter and Jesus go back and forth between two different terms. One term is agape. Jesus uses the term agape. Jesus, Peter, do you agape me? I probably didn't parse that correctly, but I did the best I can. No. And Peter uses the term phileo. Two different words for love, two different meanings. Now commentators kind of go back and forth of, well, is this a stylistic thing that John is using or is it here for emphasis? I think it's emphasis. I'm not going to make too much of it, but I do think that it's worth drawing out because it does, it does fit with the overall nature of Peter's reinstatement and what we see of Peter later. Okay, let me kind of help navigate those two words. The agape love is the wholehearted devotion. It involves the mind and the will. 
Okay? Think of confronting sin in a friend or family member or someone for the good of that person at the risk of their friendship. Right? If you genuinely love this person, you'll confront this issue with them because you really care for them. Right? There's an involvement of the mind and the will that moves forward and it's not primarily driven by emotion. Okay, flip this imagery around, okay? Let's say you're confronted with this situation. Something's happened with a friend. You're like, I really feel like I need to, I really need to talk to you about this. But you guys are getting ready to go, I don't know. It's hard to say what we do, you know, now. You're going to go hiking or you're going to go, you're going to go do something fun at the next event. You don't want to spoil that moment. You don't want to spoil the fun. You don't spoil the feeling, you know, we're going to have like a good time. We'll just put it off, Right? That's very different. You know, that, when the relationship has led that direction, it's led more by emotion and feeling than it is by a deeper commitment, by a deeper love that pursues the overall holy good of this person that involves the, involves the will and the mind in that aspect. The word phileo means more of a natural affection where that's led more by that feeling in the moment, emotion. This is probably more in line with what our culture defines as love. I, 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 think, of, I think of friendships that are bonded by natural interests. Um, I, I think it was when Austin, uh, when he came in the first week, he saw my backpack. He's like, dude, backpack. I was like, yeah, backpack. And I was like, yeah, we're best friends now. You know, and we talked for like 10 minutes about backpack. It was great, you know. Um, but that's a natural, you know, that's just a natural bond. That's a natural affection, you know. When you, when you share that with somebody, yeah, it just occurs naturally, you know. Um, and and that, those are easy. Those are easy relationships, right? It's easy to bond and connect with somebody when you share a hobby together, when you share a career profession together, Right, it's e- those are those are easy. Those are natural affections. Neither one is wrong. Let me make sure that I point this out. Neither one of those, those those are wrong. But there are circumstances. There are things in which one is more fitting than the other, right? And so Peter, he knows the frailty of his own love for Christ. And when Jesus uses the term agape, and Peter responds. If he didn't believe that Jesus was omniscient, if he didn't believe at this point that Jesus saw how, you know, the true depths of his own heart, he might be tempted to use that agape term. Yes, I love you like that. But knowing Jesus' omniscience, knowing that he sees into the depths of his real heart, he uses the term phileo. I think he does it in a humble sense. You know, if Lord, you, you know I've said in the, in the path and I, past and I've failed when I was confident of it. Lord, I, I love you, but you know the frailty of my own love. He appeals again to Jesus' omniscience rather than boasting in his own self-confidence. And Jesus asks, do you love me? It's interesting, in the third, third time, Jesus uses the term phileo. Do you love me? And Peter still, he uses the term phileo, but he still appeals to Jesus' omniscience. It still bothers Peter that Jesus is asked. He's pressing this question. It's like he's pressing on a wound that Peter's not wanting to 
to, to go to. And Jesus is like, yes, we've got to go there in order for, in order for you to move forward, in order, for, in order for the work that I have ahead for you. You've got to deal with this. We've got to, we've got to address this right now. And so the question I think we're left with is what kind of love does Peter have for Jesus at this point? I think when you take a big picture look at the New Testament, you see that Peter's love for Christ grows to that agape love. And I think you see that in this prediction of of his death where, where Jesus then turns around in verse 18, and says, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wanted to. Basically, you, you did whatever you wanted to. You know, your own emotion, your own will steered and guided your life. And when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. Church history, and even John's attestment right here, was that that was... That was the prediction of Jesus, of Peter's own death, that he would be martyred. Tradition says that Peter was martyred upside down. He was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner manner as Christ. You think about it, in his denial, Peter was avoiding persecution. Right? I don't know that man. No, he's, he's... He's avoiding it. Can't help but think that that love had to change. His devotion to Christ had to go more wholeheartedly, not steered more by emotions and and a natural affection, shared common interest, but that his mind was just saturated in who Christ was and his heart followed that. So much so that when it came time for him to be martyred, he didn't run from that. And so the question for us is, same as what Jesus posed to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Church, do you, what type of love do you have for Christ? Do you have a natural affection for Jesus that stems from the benefits of being in his garden? Friendship, warm feelings, potluck dinners. Remember we used to do this? Comfortable fellowships. Does it scratch a moral itch for you? As the church is sifted, and that's what's happening right now in America, as the church is sifted, that type of love will go away. It will no longer become convenient. The itch will no longer need to be scratched by the church. It will be scratched by identifying with a particular group. There won't be warm feelings because there will be cold pressure from the outside world. Or do you have a wholehearted devotion to Christ that's willing to follow him when it means genuine suffering, when there's an easier, more convenient life available? Can't help but think for Peter. I mean, there's always fishing. You got always fishing. If he just said, nope, yeah, this is just too much, I'm going to go fishing. But he never did, right? 
He never did. He even wrote to, in, in, in First Peter, he wrote to the scattered church and talked about you know, the, the glorious blessing of suffering and what it was producing for them. That was a kneeling, tempering their faith. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will find it. You know, he said that in Matthew right after Jesus came to him and confronted him about him saying he was going to go. Jesus said he was going to go to the cross. He was going to die. And Peter comes to him and says, don't say those types of things. And Jesus calls him out. He calls him Satan. And right after that, he says, here's what the price is for following me. Following Christ in wholehearted love and devotion means a death to the old self, the old natural affections that are based on, and you fill in the blank, and a new life that sees and knows God and his will and is willing to follow, willing to be obedient to him wherever he leads. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You treasure God, you treasure Christ, your heart will be with him. Two more points and we'll be done. Jesus closes these last two questions with, to, to Peter. He says, shepherd my sheep. Or he says, feed my sheep. And now, for the, for the early church, for the, for the Christians there, for the Israelites, it would point back to successive moments in the Old Testament where God had talked about feeding his people. Remember in Deuteronomy, in Exodus, the Israelites come through, um, they come through the Red Sea, and God feeds them with manna through heaven. And Moses records this in Deuteronomy 8. He says that God fed the Israelites manna from, he- from heaven and led, let them be hungry so that they would understand that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Later, Isaiah said, prophesies of the, the coming kingdom. And he says, those who, you, you who are hungry, you who are thirsty, come, buy bread without money. Buy bread with money you don't have. And in verses 1 and 2, he's talking about buying and eating, buying and eating, being fed. And you see him go back and forth, listen. The Lord says, listen. The Lord says, listen. You see the connection with Deuteronomy? Be fed with true bread. Be fed with true true food. Listen to the word of the Lord. Jeremiah said, prophesying in the new kingdom to come, that eventually when Christ would come and the new church would be established, he says, the Lord says, then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. Remember Jesus in John 6, and he said, I am the true bread would come down out of heaven. He who eats of this bread will live forever. That a good pastor tactfully applies the word of God to his church. This was what Peter was tasked with. Right? This is what Peter was tasked to do. Aptly apply the word of the Lord to the church, to the flock of God. 
rightly divide it and rightly apply it to, their, to that church's needs. Think of a good gardener, right? A good gardener tends that garden, gives it water, pulls weeds out, takes care of the plants that are in it. Jesus says, Peter, do this by administering my word. And a good disciple, good Christian, whether you're called to pastorship or not, follows in that same vein in discipleship and discipling leading others to Christ and to follow him. And lastly, Peter, Jesus closes out this conversation with Peter and it's not said, but it's, if you kind of visualize, Peter's turned, Jesus turned and was walking away, you know, conversation, breakfast is over, he's walking away and Peter follows him. You know, now whether or not it was, Peter's like, okay, follow me, I'm going to, follow you you know we're gonna go do we're gonna do this thing again it's hard to say but Jesus is walking Peter's walking and John who wrote this gospel John is following him following after him now that's not uncommon because John was very close to Jesus he was in that inner circle they had a very unique uh, a very uh, special bond special relationship um, and Peter sees John following and he points back and he goes hey, what about him I mean, Jesus is here just reinstated Peter. He's predicted his death, what's going to happen to him in the future. And Jesus, and Peter's like, what about him? What's going to happen to him? What, what's his job? What's he supposed to do? And Jesus replies, Peter, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Notice what he says. I mean, he's, he's reiterating that. You follow me. You fo- don't worry about this. I think oftentimes... Well, here, here, here's, here's the lesson for us here. Don't be so preoccupied with the hidden will of God that you miss obeying his revealed will. Peter's so concerned about John, what's going to happen to him? Jesus is like, do what I ask you to. You know, I don't know how many of you with your kids, look, go brush your teeth. Okay. Start playing with toys. What did I have? What are we having for dinner? Can I have a snack? Go brush your teeth. What did I ask you to do? And Jesus, follow me. Follow me, Peter. Don't be worried about this. Don't be concerned about this over here. Follow me. And that for us can manifest itself in in different ways. It can show up in an unnecessary concern for others and trying to live our lives vicariously through them. You know, I'm going to kind of steer your life. Parents, this can happen with children. Grandparents, it can happen with grandchildren. You know, it can happen that way. It can happen with friends. It can happen with people. It's like, okay, you're going to be my hobby. I'm going to steer your life. going to make you into this great disciple. It can occur by trying to find that mythical unicorn of a perfect life and a perfect career. What's your, what's your will for my life, Lord? What should I do, job? Who should I marry? We know, all of these things. And seeking that out, trying to figure out this, this, this hidden will of God. And God has said, you follow me. I've given you the gospel. I've given you the word. And I've given you a task. Proclaim my name to the nations. Show people in the way you live your life and the way you talk and the way you speak how glorious I am. Point to me in creation, to, to your neighbor and to your friends. 
point me out, reveal me to others. And you're worried about whether you're going to you know, be a doctor or whether you're going to sweep floors all your life. Those things are important, but follow my revealed will. Do what I have asked you to, and those things will take care of themselves. It can come as a preoccupation with academic theology, but never actually engaging in service and the people work. I think this is easy, particularly within the Reformed camp. You know, we, we you know, sort of eyes are open to the beauty of grace and the doctrines of grace and things. And I've heard the term used, it's like giving a five-year-old a shotgun. You know, it's all of a sudden, oh, you know, digging into theology and and academics, it becomes very academic study in the work of actually engaging people with the gospel and discipleship and tending to lambs and tending to sheep and fishing. Don't miss that, right? There's, with Peter, it's you're a fisher of men, fishing. Now the metaphor's changed, tender of sheep. You're to fish, evangelize, and you're to tend sheep. You're to disciple. And sometimes that gets lost, because we've become so focused on I want to know more, I want to know more, I want to know more. I heard this, uh, this illustration used. I thought it was well put. That's like a man who shot with a poison arrow who then tries to discern what kind of wood is this arrow made from? What's the chemical composition of the poison that has caused this infirmity in me? You were shot with an arrow. Christ is the, he's the healing antidote. Others are shot with the same poison arrow of sin. Christ is the arrow. Now, as you move and as you grow and as you walk closer with him and as you deal with people, some of those details become worked out and you start to ask questions and you do start to dig and there is knowledge that is gained. But to only deal in the realm of academics is totally removed from that command to follow me. Does that make sense? I hope so. Well, I'm going to close, and I hope this is helpful. There's so much in here. Um, but I think that last, uh, the, the, that penetrating overarching question, I'll leave you with that. What kind of love do you have for the Lord? Oftentimes, you know, we think we have this wholehearted devotion to the Lord, and we're confident in it. We're on the mountaintop and something happens and it brings us down into the bottom of the pit. And we need the soothing grace of God to come along beside us and reaffirm, to blow away the ashes of unbelief and failure to show us there's a tender coal still burning there. It's weak and it's feeble. And God blows on that and grows it. So I pray that we'll each look in our hearts and ask, what type of love do I have for the Lord? And that becomes a, that's a regular question for us, wherever we are. And knowing that if we profess faith in Christ, we walk with him, we follow him, we can be confident that he holds us. I'm reminded of what the, the writer to the Hebrews says, and I think it's Hebrews 6, where he he chastises the church for their unbelief and says some very, very hard condemning things to them. 
And yet he says, I'm confident of this thing, that God will continue his work in you because of your love for the saints. You love God even though you've, you're shattered in unbelief right now. But the work that you've done and your love for the saints and tending for his church, is that's what I see. There's confidence there that the Lord is going to continue his good work in you. Not because of your own merits, but because of his grace. I think you see that with Peter here. Even though Peter had failed, Christ comes in and he fans that flame of faith. And he grows Peter out of it. So let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you that, Lord, we don't come to your word and we find phenomenal heroes that are so high above us that, you know, we just, we're like, we, we long to be like that. We long to be, yeah, can we just, can we just be like Peter? We see everyday broken humans that at every turn of the page are in need of your grace and your mercy and at the right time in the early morning on the side of a lake around a charcoal fire you supply grace and you supply mercy never a moment too late and never a moment too early so Father I pray that you would do that for us that you would fan the flames of love for, for Jesus it wouldn't be steeped merely in emotion and what's comfortable and what's convenient. But it would be a deep love and knowing you personally through Christ that we might all run the race of endurance that's before us. Sometimes that, that race is a crawl. Sometimes it's a sprint. But regardless, Father, would you grow that agape type of love in each of us, that love that is wholeheartedly devoted to you, even when it means suffering. That we would see worship for you and proclamation of your name. That you would be exalted on our lives, even at the expense of our lives. We would see that as the greatest, greatest of opportunities, Father. That regardless of how much or how little we each suffer, we would be willing to if it means your name is exalted and you are glorified. It's in Christ's precious name I pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance towards you. May he give you peace. You're dismissed.